Hello and welcome to another episode of Points of Information. As always, from the comfort of our own homes, couches, living rooms, wherever we might happen to be, we're not letting a little bit of social isolation get in the way of recording a good podcast. Here today we're talking about the Monash Asia Studies debating competition, a competition which is is still going on at the time of recording, which started a while ago, and we're going to have a look at some of the topics, some of the teams, some of the various different aspects of this competition, and I go over them a bit with some of the adjudicators from said competition. So we have three brand new voices on the podcast today. The first is that of Sophia. Sophia, hello. Hi, Alex. I'm excited to chat about this competition. So I've been adjudicating with the DAV for just about five years now. Um, I'm a senior adjudicator and I absolutely adore the Monash Asian Studies debating competition because I always learn something. Very good. Hannah, you there. Hi there. Thanks for having me on board, Alexander. My name's Hannah Q. Hart. Like Sophia, I've been with the DAV for about five years. I am a senior ranked adjudicator. I spend a lot of time going into schools and um, coaching, training and adjudicating there. But this is my first time with the Monash Asian Studies competition. So I'm very excited to be joining you all. Excellent. Finally, we have our Vice President of Schools, Alistair Gerling. Alistair, would you like to give a brief description of, about yourself, what you do and your extensive history with debating? <laughs> yes, hello. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm incredibly delighted to be here. I've been doing debating uh, for a very long time, for a long time as a sort of really competitive schools debater and then a university debater. I joined the DAV, I don't know, two years ago or three years ago now. I've been adjudicating for a long while. I was, in fact, at the first ever Asian Studies Debating Championships, which I competed at as a student. And now I'm really happy to have adjudicated the final last year and then have been adjudicating all the rounds this year. So I'm, I'm really excited. I think exploring Asia in particular is an incredibly sort of consequential area inquiry for young students in Victoria. So I'm super pleased to talk about it. Very interesting. I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. MAZDEC is the Monash Asian Studies Debating Competition. And what it is, is it's a tournament run by Monash and their faculty that engages with foreign culture and China in particular, and the DAV. And what we try and do is we pick topics that explores the geopolitics and influence of China in Australia and just of you know, the significance of the Asian region in general. And that's important because often uh, in other debating tournaments, there isn't time to really you know, have a whole set of, of motions that really explore one type of geographical area. So we try and do that with Mazdaq. It's existed now for, I think, four years, been very successful. And I suppose that that's all I can think of to say on it. Aside from the fact that I think it's one of the best small competitions the DAV runs. If you get a chance to do it, if not this year, next year, I highly recommend it because uh, it's absolutely fabulous. I think I think we should get right into it because uh, there are so many different... I, th I suppose the one thing that jumps out to me is that exploring China and Asia generally is an incredibly difficult thing to do, particularly uh, in short periods of time because of the complexity, because of the nuance, and indeed also because of the fact that it operates on so many different levels and different levels of scale so you're looking at whole areas of international relations uh, and politics and then also just individual rights and individual behavior from australians and also uh, from people abroad so i think that that makes these kind of topics extremely difficult because they're such a, a wide breadth so i think that's <laughs> core to the, the starting point for this whole discussion but of course yeah, asia is such a very big place how well do you think the teams manage dealing with some of those issues in the debates you saw so the answer is uh, i was constantly surprised 
that different students and different teams managed to have really nuanced takes on different parts of the debate. Some people really understood how, for instance, Chinese domestic policy worked, how uh, the government and the sort of geopolitics of China particularly, and how it has this sort of really significant uh, foreign policy directive that sort of come about in the last 10 years, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, for example, we heard last round, that stuff uh, sometimes was done phenomenally well to a level of nuance that I think I haven't seen even at university tournaments. So that was fabulous. And other people, I think, really nutted down into what it's like to have sort of Asia and Asian culture sublimating into Australia and the benefits and costs that might impose on the way um, Australia develops. Um, and I think sometimes those were really nuanced takes as well that I thought like, wow, this is great. This is really, you know, I wish, you know, um, everyone thought about uh, these issues as complexly as some of these debaters. So I think the fact that they were exploring these issues uh, in such a sort of varied way bodes, bodes really well for, I suppose, the quality of all the speakers, actually. They're really great. They've been really thinking about it hard, which is lovely. I think part of the reason that we see that kind of level of complexity from debaters, certainly these days, that we might not see at university debating is just a reflection of how multicultural debating at a high school level really is. Like we see a lot of students from Asian backgrounds coming through and talking of things that are like relevant or drawn from their experiences. And so they have like an easier way to contextualize it than for example, a white or a British Australian might. And <laughs> it's really cool to see this huge diversity being really used as a strength in this competition. And I think that was the difference between the stronger and the weaker students. You could see the stronger students really made that personal and heartfelt connection to the topic and we're seeing it's something broader than, you know, just for instance with the first round, like something broader than oh, of just what we're learning at school, but they could really identify the relevance of learning an Asian language to not only our education systems but to um, contributing to a much larger, um, more global, broader effect. And I think, you know, irrespective of what your family background is or where you've travelled, I think having this competition, students who are doing well at this competition make that connection in their mind. And it doesn't matter if that's coming through literature or second hearing secondhand experiences. I think the key is in feeling it. And that's been something that's pretty special to see. I completely agree. <laughs> So speaking of the topics and the grasp of them, I guess it's customary in this podcast to do a review once a round is over, at least for our school's competition. Would it be worth going over the rounds that have been completed in this competition and discussing what we thought of them, you know, how the teams approach them? I think that's a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. The first round was that all secondary students in Australia should study an Asian language. Yeah, I think, um, so I saw the uh, mixed team, the team that pulled from a few different schools, um, and I was really impressed with how well they work together as a team on this. I think it's a, it's a debate that can have many, many layers, mm -hmm. and I mean, in both rounds, this is true, but I saw an incredibly complex debate where people sort of tried to address each of these layers when talking about, like, you know, what the benefits of learning a language might be compared to some people who might not want to learn a particular language for cultural reasons, for example, um, the negative team in the debate I saw talked about uh, how Uyghurs might not want to learn Mandarin <laughs> for very obvious reasons. <laughs> um, yeah. And I like, I really appreciated the complexity in that. Um, I, I think there was enormous complexity there. And I think also, uh, I saw two kind of responses to this topic. One was, again, 
navigating the complexity of the topic um, and not tripping up at some fundamental problems that you might encounter. And otherwise, I also saw some people uh, strip up a couple of times. And one of the big things when approaching a topic like this is to realize uh, that it's already quite constrained. We're already talking about you know, a specific language in a specific context, and we're making it a motion of support, right? A declaration uh, of intent to support something. But that doesn't mean that you should spend half of your first speech explaining exactly what you mean by secondary school students, explaining exactly what you mean by an Asian language. Now, it's important to set that up so that there's some context to the debate. But I think a lot of the time people want to, you know, we sometimes call it squirreling, right? They want to constrain the debate down and reduce it until it's actually more difficult to have a really engaged debate. Reducing the scale of the debate doesn't immediately set you up for success. Uh, in fact, sometimes it does the opposite because it means that the potential arguments, the potential responses that you could have, have been modeled out. Um, and that just reduces the complexity of the debate and therefore the quality of it. But it doesn't actually guarantee you a win or in fact, increase your chances at all. Um, oh, completely. Mm. And when we think about the goal of debating in itself, it's persuasion. And I think the teams who can allude to the bigger issues and can win you over with those tree trunks of ideas. It's so much more persuasive than giving you that little twig of we're only speaking about this particular dialect, mm. talking about this particular, um, you know, secondary school age, whatever it may be. I, um, I heard a really convincing negative team who were able to identify, we've spoken about, um, I guess we've heard about the really conceptual arguments, but I think they did a really good job of identifying how pragmatically this can be really challenging for schools in Australia to offer. So I think creating that um, balance between conceptual argument, but also understanding the pragmatics of it all, it doesn't, I know these um, topics are always lending to creating a more understanding and compassionate Australian context, but sometimes things are really difficult. So I do really appreciate the teams who say it's great in theory to provide all Australian secondary students with this opportunity, but this is the real life context that we're graced with. And I think that shows some really great real life understanding. So definitely there were some great negative teams in that topic too. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's a good topic to kind of ease people into mm. the mass. It's certainly because, very approachable. Yeah, because they are secondary school students, right? <laughs> so it's easy for them to form an opinion on that. Um, I definitely, when I was in year six and seven, had to learn Mandarin at high, at school, which is not very much secondary school, but like is something where it was really interesting to view this debate through that context and to like, essentially see these students arguing over something that was forced on me. And so obviously like we can't take our personal experiences and put them in our adjudications, but it definitely like adds an element of interest to the debate where like you have that personal experience. So you can go, oh, okay, these are the arguments for making me like learn Mandarin when I was 12. <laughs> I really like that too. I think that there are these really nice moments where people were saying uh, and students were saying oh yeah actually um it you know provides intellectual nourishment and expands your intellectual capacity in a way no other subject or no other type of learning could do you know and you gotta you know here's this research about neuroplasticity uh, uh neuro is it neurodisplasticity neuroplasticity neuroplasticity beautifully remembered well done um thank you guys um neuro yeah here's this research on neuroplasticity um, and here's the relevant thing. Now, it's important to note there that though that's uh, a really strong and relevant argument that it provides unique educational gains, uh, using some statistic um, can magnify and verify a claim, a piece of logic, but it doesn't act instead of a piece of logic. 
Um, you say, well, you know, oh, here's this research. This is objectively, empirically good. Um, you know, sure, whatever you say, but they could say something subjectively, empirically the other way and neither side, it's a wash. Uh, neither side is proven true. So you have to prove the lines of logic that make it true. Um, I think that's something yeah, that I think, um, worked on. Mm. I think you tend to see that a bit more in prepared topics mm. um, for obvious reasons. They have time to go and do research. And so that was really something I gave as feedback, both in the first and the second rounds, that, you know, you're welcome to give me statistics and facts and research and quotes, but they should be used as seasoning rather than the meat of the dish. Um, and I, I, meat or meat yeah. substitute. <laughs> That's a lovely analogy. And I think speaking on that second topic for a second, that we support China's increasing influence in Africa, the way you produce a really good case for that debate is you delve into what's been published, what information there is about the Belt and Road Initiative and Xi Jinping's, you know, incredibly strong attempt to um, improve China's engagement with and investment in uh, Africa as a continent. Um, worth noting, by the way, that Africa is a continent, not a country, um, which, which is a mistake that was made, which is fine. The, the reason why I say that is because there is an incredibly diverse ecosystem of economies there from um, relatively developed uh, to, you know, really um, impoverished for various extremely nuanced reasons. So it's important not to generalize. But I think what happened was people were reading about the Belt and Road Initiative and they were saying, oh, look, China has predatory loan schemes, which means that it's impossible to actually effectively uh, invest there morally because China knows that the country will default on their loan and knows they'll be able to take uh, you know access to various infrastructure developments they're paid for. And then you see another article which is, well, these investments are the only investments Africa's ever going to get. They're the largest that we've seen in a long time and that they're going to have a really genuinely uh, beneficial impact on, on the economies in Africa. So I think both those things are true, potentially. So you have to explore you know, maybe it's part of this part of this is true in this instance, part of this is true in that instance. Maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not. These are claims that should be explored and, and weighed to see how significant and impactful they are. I think often people just uh, state an argument and don't weigh its relative harms and relative gains uh, compared to the other arguments. And it's that weighing that makes a, de a debate really engaging um, and also like uh, really high quality. And that's the thing because often in debating there are things as you've already spoken about that are empirically true you know the world is whilst the um world has many things that are right and um that are you know in flux and maybe in grayscale mm -hmm. at either end of the spectrum there is black and there is white that are true and so it's appreciating that often i see rather predatory tactics in rebuttal to say well that wasn't true at all but it's like no 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 it's a better approach to say, yes, it may be true that whatever this concept exists, but again, it's relating it back to your case of why your ID is stronger or why the um, opposing teams is weaker. And it's looking at the relationships between ideas, not the fact that these ideas ex exist rather separately in a vacuum yeah. even. I think they might say things that are just objectively the case, in which case you don't have to dispute them. Um, I, I think the other side of that actually uh, Hannah as well is you don't want to be too concessionary you don't want to say well that whole argument's true and that's a good point um, you just you know you have to exactly acknowledge the bits that are just not worth contesting and then contest the bits that are worth contesting and know uh, which areas are worth uh, engaging on and which areas aren't that's prioritization don't just you know try and scatter bomb everything don't try and just throw mud at the wall see what sticks and see what analysis is high quality and worthwhile um, and what isn't after all you've only got you know a few minutes that's right I think that's, that's very good advice, both of you. Um, something 
I always try and encourage teams to do is to like find the center of the point. So your opposition teams will say a lot of things and you have to figure out what the most important thing is and rebut that rather than all of the fluff that sits around that. Mm. Um, Sort of speaking a bit more on that second topic, I think one of the interesting arguments that sort of started to come out by the negative team in my debate, but they didn't really fully flesh this out, was that um, essentially what China's doing in Africa now is very similar to what the British and the French and the Italians and the Spanish to a lesser extent did during those big colonialism years. And so like framing it as being in Australia, which my debate did, you know, us as Australia support China's expansion and involvement in Africa. Um, I feel like I would have really liked to see more discussion of the fact that we don't really have a moral high ground in this circumstance. <laughs> You're both making me very excited. My round two debate is this afternoon, so I can't wait to sink my teeth in now that you've provided <laughs> a bit of contextual background. It sounds like it's going to be a really fiery clash. Mm. Yeah, I think um, I think something to remember with Mastic as well is that the students do get like quite a comprehensive resource guide. So I think they get sort of a one page, half a page or one page summary with leading questions and links to resources. And so there is like a little bit of prepping that everyone gets. And the real thing we're looking for is sort of both Alistair and Hannah alluded to just now is like that critical thinking on top of those resources. You don't just read a Guardian article and then parrot it back to me if it like agrees <laughs> with your point. You actually like think about it critically and go, well, what is the logic behind what they're saying? Why are these opinions held? What is sovereignty really? Like, and sort of dive into it that little bit extra. I think I, I felt that way really strongly, actually, is that, yeah, it's it's not just saying, well, you know, sovereignty is this inherent good and that it ought to be protected. And that's the end of the argument. Uh, and that's what lots of debaters tend to do. And it's not that they don't understand that there's more you know, nuance there. It's that they kind of assume oh, I understand it. You understand it. You all understand it. It's fine. Unfortunately, as adjudicators, we have this um, terrible mark on our backs, which is that we need to make sure that you've said everything that you meant. Um, which means that if you if you say sovereignty is important, you need to explain to me why is that why that's the case, why that's relevant, why that's important, um, and also just you know what inherent you know for instance value sovereignty has. That's a few you know thirty seconds, forty seconds of analysis that needs to happen in order to make that particular argument really strong. And if it's not there, then only partial credit can be given uh, in a lot of instances. And that I think is the big danger of particularly school students who aren't familiar with a lot of these areas. Uh, not realizing they need to step through and ask themselves why this is the case. Why is that true? I had a, a coach when I was at school long ago um, in the UK, actually, and she used to just stop me midway through an argument and just say, well, why? And then you'd, you explain, you know, why you think that's the case. And he goes, well, why is that the case? And you, you know, you keep going down until you reach some fundamental truth about the universe. You know, you go, wow, I really got somewhere. I really proved something down to its very core, down to its, you know, absolute component parts. And I think that um, that creates something that's extremely strong because you're stepping through and there's no lost analysis and there's no, um, you know, tailing off near the end. Yeah. I suspect I'm going to say almost exactly this in an upcoming episode. Um, but the thing I try to tell students is like to imagine your adjudicator as a three-year-old with really advanced vocabulary. So every time they say something, you, you as an adjudicator going, why, why is that true? Why do I care? Why does it matter? Why is this happening? Mm. And so, and that like often I'll see like the light spark up in their eyes and they'll be like, oh, that's how much I have You're to explain because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, 
because when you're so familiar with a topic, it's like some of these students are because they've been doing their work and they've been doing their research. You kind of forget what other people don't know and you sort of say words and you're like, well, this is obvious. <laughs> um, but it's it's really not to us as, as adjudicators because a lot of the time, like we'll take a quick glance at the resources and I'd really like to know how much kind of preparation you two do for these debates. But like I'll glance at the resources to know like the context that the students have going into this but I won't take a deep dive. So I've got no idea what you're talking about unless you explain it to me in that additional detail. Well, at the end of the day, we're reflecting the knowledge basis of the average reasonable person, right? The average reasonable person wouldn't have the resource guides available. They may or may not be across what is being argued. So it's really great to hear that understanding and to appreciate how the student has interpreted the conversation But I guess to counter both of um, what you two have just said, I guess the challenge of speaking for such a short time, for only a couple of minutes as these students have, is when you do go down that rabbit hole, making sure that you link things back to your original point or your original contention or what the topic actually is because it is so easy to follow follow this track into what is sovereignty, Mm. let's take a detour into Australian politics, these kinds of things. But then once you stop, I want to know how this relates to the original topic. What were you actually saying in the first place? It's a really key, I think it's really important that students don't forget uh, don't forget to make these links back because it just strengthens that argument again and ties it together neatly because otherwise it's really, there are so many debaters who in fact just drama students who love having those monologues. <laughs> you're not, you're not a... I definitely believe that. You're not an actor on the stage. You're a person with a point to prove. So prove that point. Don't just keep giving us the gift of your voice because believe it or not, we're here for knowledge. We're here for information. (laughs) Give it to us, not just the sound of your voice. You want to take like a minimum viable product approach to your speech. What are the least you can do that conclusively proves what you've said and doesn't leave any holes? It's certainly (laughs) one of the biggest cardinal sins I see in debates generally, and also in the public speaking competition, which is still going concurrently as we record this, as was being discussed in the previous episode of this podcast, is linking back. And I feel like a lot of, not just in the Monash Asia uh, debating competition, but the just generally linking back is probably one of the big things that debaters quite often and readily forget, which is really unfortunate because it's also one of the most important parts of a speech. Why is it relevant to what we're talking about? I think that's it is don't just speak on the topic um explain how it relates you know to the claims that you're making to the case that you're building um and also i think that, you know the feedback that you see and, and really generally in high quality speakers it's just the signposting is, is really great and that is you know you say okay i've got three points here one two three on that first point which is called this right which is why australia has a you know incentive in terms of trade to encourage china's influence in that africa and how it benefits us from a trade perspective Okay, let's talk on that. One, two, three, four. Great. At the end of that argument, here's what we've proved. Now to the second one. One, two, three, four. Right. Mm. One, two, three, four. It's so clean. It's so nice. And some sometimes it feels too structured, right? And that's you know a balance you have to make. And you can look at some fantastic examples online if you want to see any really good signposting. Because often the highest quality speakers, their words per minute go up and up and up and up and up. And then as they sort of understand, you know, the sort of art of debating and how to really craft things efficiently, their words per minute start going down again. 
and suddenly they're saying fewer words, they just have much more impact and they're much more significant and consequential. There are some speakers and they're amazing because they just sound so slow and so melodic and you just sit there and you go, wow, of course you're right. Yes, you're right. Mm. And you know, it's just because the case is so well constructed, they've really worked out what's important and what's not. And they're only focusing on the stuff that's really going to win them the debate, give them as many paths to victory as possible. Sometimes speeding up does not make you go faster. <laughs> it just reminds me of the fact that in this competition, we weigh matter and manner equally. So on that, whilst it makes sense in terms of structuring your argument to put some real thought into how you're going to craft it, where you want the you know peaks and troughs, all of that kind of thing to be, equally, you want to recreate that with your voice because we're still listening, we're still watching. I know, yes, it's an online debate, but we can still gather a whole heap about how you're presenting through the, our computer screens. So it's important for the speakers to remember that it is important how you reflect what you're saying with how you're saying because we're looking for it and we're marking on it. It's important. Is it worth talking a little bit about, a little bit speculatively about round three that's going to be coming up in a week or two, how well we think it will go, that Kashmir should strive for independence? I'm real excited because usually the Monash Asian Schools debating competition is all done in one day. And by the time you get to the third debate, the students are exhausted and they don't give their best speeches and you're giving the adjudication and you're just like, I can tell all you want to do is go home right now. <laughs> so I'm really excited for a Ripper third round. It's a very context heavy debate that the students will have needed to do their groundwork on you can't really just kind of wander into this and be like i don't know cashmere it's where the fabric comes from right like <laughs> can't can't get away with that but i think it's going to be excellent i'm i'm so keen <laughs> i think the key is going to come from as you said sophia doing your research but understanding precedent of which countries have already achieved independence how did they do with that what were the pros the cons what would they do net differently you know if they had their time again i think it's important to reach out and see um draw similarities from other events around the world and then inf um, inform your argument with that kind of research because whilst this might be an unprecedented event you can always draw similarities or draw knowledge from other contexts so i think doing the research directly on the topic, but then also branching out for that um, width and scope, I think that's going to be really integral to doing well at this debate. I absolutely agree. I think that Kashmir is, look, as we were talking about earlier, much of the world has been marred by colonialism in decades and in centuries past. And Kashmir and India and Pakistan are no exception, that their ability to function as countries has been hard won and has often happened in spite of colonial intervention. And so Kashmir is a, a sort of an incredibly complex, diverse, interesting place. And the politics uh, that occur there will, I suppose, remain extremely consequential for the region for decades to come. But that doesn't mean that there aren't sort of areas of inquiry you can start at. And you can just sort of explore, well, okay, what's the history generally of Kashmir? Okay, cool. I understand that. Now, what does independence mean to a country? What is it? What value would it provide? And what are the alternatives, right? And realistically, if we look at Kashmir, the alternatives look like a land being taken and controlled by a government of two sort of extremely large countries in the region. And also those countries trying to 
annex a land, depending on your perspective, <laughs> annex, take control of, use, occupy, or um, or just restate sovereignty over an area which has been in flux and in discussion for a very long time. So I think, again, with all these topics, it's really important to note the sensitivity of it, to know how complex it can be, how um, personal it can be. Sometimes some faraway issue can seem not personal to you, but you realise that there's someone around that really finds himself engaging with it on a personal level. So um, I suppose be wary of that and be wary that it's easy to generalise and actually just exploring a small area and the subtlety and the significance of that small area is better than trying to paint with a really large brush and actually not to get the specifics right, so much so that you're actually getting things wrong. Um, yeah. So I think you have to be wary of all those things. I think having having the little context of recent history of the regions is really good advice. Like I, I mean, many of the students won't remember the incredible nuclear tensions whenever India and Pakistan got very mad at each other. Um, yes. I think a lot of those mm. happened in the early 2000s. I remember it getting very tense quite a few times. And so, like, just being aware of, like, the the historical context and where that is and, like, the tensions that exist in the world geopolitically, you don't have to completely understand the sort of OG separation of India and Pakistan. You could if you wanted to. I learned most stuff about that from a Doctor Who episode because I've got a PhD in genetics, not history. Um, <laughs> and so, like, just having that context so you can shape your arguments around that, mm. I think it's a really good idea because everything in every debate you do you need to frame the debate and so the research you can do for this topic will be best used towards your framing i think even like if we skip ahead you do your research phase Mm. that's great but i think once you get in the heat of the moment of this debate it becomes a bit difficult if you feel like "Uh oh my area of research didn't explore whatever the opposition is explaining and i think it'll be a good tip for debaters to take a moment, pause, appreciate what the other team's saying, but don't get lost in that fact. Understand what the key idea is of mm. whatever their explanation is. If you're getting lost in the complete nuance of, I don't know, whatever, some niche political um, detail, remember what the opposition is actually getting to and then centre yourself on that idea because understanding the difference between detail description and actual persuasion is really important in a meaty topic such as this one so i think research do as much of it as you can beforehand but once you get to show time be aware that it's all reactive and both teams are placed on that even playing field now of just having a few minutes to speak what is the magic that can come from that and that also i think ties in with what we were just talking about in terms of don't forget it's not just the evidence or the stat or whichever parliament has uh, parliamentarian has just said in whichever country. You also have to remember to link it back to the topic that Kashmir should strive for independence. So as an adjudicator, we want to be hearing why or why not should Kashmir strive for independence? Yeah, your opinion on Modi's economic policy may matter in this debate if it impacts on why but Kashmir should strive for independence. Yeah. <laughs> If you are a talented or just wanting to try debating a little bit more beyond the five-round schools competition plus finals, there are opportunities which exist within the DAV community to try. That's true. And so it's it's important for kids to know that if this is something you are passionate about, there is an opportunity. And whether you're aware of it because your school's told you about it or if you're not, 
get talking to people around the debating um, community, send Dav an email. Everyone is more than willing to assist young and passionate debaters because the opportunities Mm. are out there. And don't get scared off by something that seems really topic specific, like the Monash Aiden Schools debating competition. We give you resource guides. We give you a boost on the way to like understanding enough about these topics to really chat about them. And And, like the, they're not not hard either. You know, in the Monash Aiden Studies competition. The, the f- topic for round one is that all secondary students in Australia should study an Asian language. That's something you could see in a general schools competition. Yeah. And yeah. I think... Absolutely. I think as well, right? Like, it, it can be intimidating if you don't know or don't have a vibe at how good you are at debating. And really, and I think Hannah was getting at this as well, it doesn't matter how good you are. <laughs> it matters if you care enough to keep trying and if you're passionate about to want to improve i think Mm. it's really important to understand that even your adjudicators started somewhere something a story i try to use very judiciously but now i'm saying it on the podcast so whatever (laughs) is for about the first six months i debated i cried in every speech i gave because i was Mm. so scared like i couldn't take feedback because i would just start crying as soon as someone was like so here's where you could improve. I'd be like, I'm not perfect. I'm a failure. I'm terrible. And just like run away. I was 18 at this point in time. So this wasn't like a 13 year old having a panic attack. This was a fully fledged young adult, just like being very afraid of debating. And it's <laughs> and easy so, to be afraid of debating because it's quite yeah. a confrontational game. And We every... talked about this in the first episode for 2020 when we oh, had Tara and Michael. Yeah. And yeah. Every adjudicator you have will have a story like that. Maybe not as intense as mine, but they'll definitely have those stories. And so we will be supporting you. Yeah. (laughs) Classic. (laughs) Yeah. It can be really tough. There's no doubt about it. Excellent. All right. Sounds like a good place to wrap up. Thank you all for joining on for this afternoon. Thank you for taking time out of your day. That is all from us, I think, for the moment. Uh... If you have any questions, queries, or anything you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, as always, you can reach us on publications at dav.com.au. But aside from that, I hope you found this, well, helpful if you are a Mazdaq debater. If not, I hope you found it an interesting look into some of the other competitions that the DAV runs. And I, we have got a very interesting episode ready for you next time. Bye. Woohoo!